The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Pashandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Ada, as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast up her, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed this regu these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. 
King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Well, friends, imagine you are out for a walk somewhere in Hong Kong, maybe on one of the trails, maybe on the waterfront, uh, maybe just trying to get through all the crowds. And it's hot again. Temperature is high, humidity is high. And so you are hot and bothered. You're frustrated, you're tired. Uh, you want a break. You want a drink. Well, imagine at that moment you reach into your bag and you remember that you have one of God's great gifts to humanity, a can of Coke Zero. Now, here's my question. When you take that sip, when you take that gulp, what noise do you then make afterwards? That's right. That's a beautiful noise. I mean, even the opening of the can, just listen. Oh. And then, as you say, you take a sip. It's almost like a muscle reflex. You can't not make that noise. You see, that noise is the sound of relief. It's the sound of being at ease. It's the sound of knowing that things will be okay, even just for a moment. It's the sound of someone who has found rest. Now, of course, here at Ambassador, we are not sponsored by Coca-Cola. But in that little moment, I think you get a glimpse of one of our deepest longings. See, in that moment, what do we want? We want rest. But of course, it's not just in those little moments in life. No, in, we want it in the big moments. We want it in the big picture. We want it for our world. And we look around and see the state that our world is in, the fractures, the friction. What do we want? We want rest. And friends, as we turn to our passage this morning, we find words of encouragement. Because what we will see today is that God brings rest for His people. God brings rest. See, over the past seven weeks, we've been working our way through this book of Esther. And today we get to the end. Week by week, we've seen how the tension has been building We've seen the big climax of the story, the big turning point of the story. And here at the end, all those threads are drawn together. God brings rest for his people. They get relief. They get respite from all their trials. They have something to truly celebrate. And my prayer for us is as we come to the end of this book of Esther, as we look at how this rest is described here, as you look at how it connects to our lives and our experience as Christian believers, my prayer is that we would see afresh that we too have something remarkable to celebrate. Friends, we have cause for celebration this morning as we look back at what God has done through Jesus Christ, but more than that as well. See, not only do we have something wonderful to celebrate, we also have something wonderful to anticipate to look forward to, to hold out for. Because not only is it that God brings rest for his people here in Esther, no, what we know as Christian believers is that God will bring rest, true and lasting rest for all who trust in him. 
And so that's where we're going this morning. But let's start by jumping into our passage and looking at the rest that's described here. Because the emphasis here is that the rest that God brings is comprehensive. It's a comprehensive rest. Now you'll have come to expect now that our passage here flows right out of what we looked at last week. And last week you'll remember God turned the enemy's plans on his head. Uh, God brought reversal for his people, a complete reversal. And we have that great summary in chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. It was a complete reversal. And what our passage today does is it expands on that. It describes that in more detail. It shows us the scope and extent of this reversal. And really the scope is comprehensive. Chapter 9, verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now we see the scope there. They got the upper hand against all their enemies. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now that phrase there, they did what they pleased, in our context, it, it sounds a little bit negative. The, the connotations are negative. But the phrase it translates the original is actually much more neutral. Uh, this is how one scholar explains it. The inference is that the Jews were given a free hand without official interference. In other words, it's what we saw last week. Uh, they didn't fall at the hand of their enemies. No, their enemies couldn't stand before them. That was the scope of their reversal. It was comprehensive. No one could stand before them. And so in the verses that follow, we get the details that describe this scope. In verse 6, we see that in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Concentrated in that place of power, there were 500 people who were predisposed, determined to stand against God's people. But they got the upper hand against them, all of them. And we see that in verse 7 as well, we get the names of Haman's 10 sons. A big shout out to Sinek, who read all 10 of them. I'm just going to skip ahead to the summary in verse 10. Uh, the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Uh, the scope of their victory was, was comprehensive. Uh, the scope of that reversal was comprehensive. Uh, the number we see in verse 11 gets reported to the king. Uh, the king's almost astonished at what they've managed to achieve. And so he gives Esther another promise. He says, what is your petition? It will be given you. And so in verse 13, we see that Esther asks for an extension. If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. And she wants to press home the victory. And so once again, we see the extent of this reversal. Uh, verse 15, uh, they came together on the 14th day, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. It turns out there was yet another 300 who stood against God's people there, but they got the victory. And we get a summary of the province, uh, the, the kingdom at large in verse 16. They killed 75,000 of them. Uh, do you see the emphasis here? It goes from that summary that we saw last week to now the details. Uh, it shows the scope of that reversal. It was comprehensive. Now, of course, as we look at a passage like this, this kind of report, uh, it will raise all sorts of questions for us. We thought a bit about this last week, uh, moral questions, ethical questions. Uh, is this right? What does this mean for us? 
And so if you weren't able to be here last week, I'd encourage you to go back on our podcast and listen to last week because we, we spent some time trying to grapple with some of these questions. And really, those principles, they all apply here as well. See, one thing that we need to remember is who it was that God's people gained a victory over. Uh, this wasn't just a license for, for free-for-all destruction. No, this was against those who hated them. Specifically, it was against their enemies. And you'll remember last week, there was that time gap. There were there was nine months between when Mordecai issued his decree, giving God's people permission to defend themselves. Nine months between that and this day when everything turned around. Uh, during that nine months, a lot of people changed sides. We saw last week, lots of people joined God's people. And so those people who remained here, well, those were the, they were set in their opposition to God and his purposes. It was against their enemies. And so actually, as we look at these numbers, what the numbers reveal is the number of those people who across the kingdom of Persia were determined to set themselves against God's people. Now, of course, one of the things that might make us uncomfortable is Esther's request here. Uh, the king gives us sort of a carte blanche. Okay, what, what do you want? What, what do you want to do? And uh, we thought, okay, Esther, surely you would, you would just leave it there. You, you've gained the victory. The reversal has happened. And yet she asks for an extension. Uh, it seems almost that she's vindicative here. Now, of course, it's, it's possible that she is. Uh, you'll remember all the way through, we're not seeing a, a model of exactly what we're to do. It, it might well be that actually she is just being vindictive. But at the same time, we don't get a, a comment from the narrator that that's the case. See, perhaps Esther knew that concentrated in the place of power, that hostility was even deeper. But that there were still more people out there who were set against God's people. And so you notice that detail. What she asks for isn't an extra day to do whatever they wanted. It was another day to do what they did on that first day. And so the same regulations, so to speak, apply. This was still to defend themselves. It was still only against those who opposed them. And so in that sense, that number, again, it shows us just how many people, even within that city, were set against God's people. Uh, one other uh, detail that is helpful here, you may have noticed it as seeing read the passage. Verse 10, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. It comes up again and again. Verse 14, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Uh, verse 16, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Why? Tell us that detail again and again. Every time it's reported the scope of their victory, they do not lay their hands on the plunder. Well, again, I think this reminds us of what we saw last week. You see, what's going on here isn't primarily horizontal. It isn't just one clique gaining an upper hand against another clique. Now, what's happening here is vertical. This is God bringing judgment against his enemies. So I think this detail about the plunder, it shows us this wasn't for their personal gain. This wasn't because they saw what they had and they got them so that they could have it for themselves. No, this was God bringing judgment on his enemies as he defends his people. And so we see the scope is comprehensive. See, as they experienced reversal, that scope was comprehensive. And the result, well, the result was rest. Now we see that in verse 16. Uh, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief. The word translated here is relief. It could be translated as rest from their enemies. It's actually the same root as we find in verse 17. 
uh, on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That's what happens in Susa, the capital. It's the same as what happens throughout the kingdom. Uh, they rested. Uh, we get this great summary in verse 22. This was to be the time that they remembered when the Jews got relief, when they got rest from their enemies. As the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Uh, they got rest. They got relief from all that was against them. You see, for God's people to get relief in this context, for them to have peace, well, then the enemies had to be destroyed. The enemies had to be defeated. The enemies had to be disarmed. You think of it this way. How could they rest if there were still people who were set against them? And so what we find here is that that burden is lifted. That threat is taken away. In fact, what we find here is exactly what God had promised to God's people way back in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, for example. Uh, you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest. Again, it's the same word in Hebrew. From all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Uh, it gets even more specific. A number of times we've looked at Deuteronomy 25 and God's promises about God's enemies, the Amalekites. And we see this theme of rest again. Verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 19. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget that God brings them rest. See, as we come to the end of the book of Esther, God comes through for his people and he brings them comprehensive rest. Now, of course, all the way through this series, we've been remembering that we live in a different time and era to this. Uh, this isn't exactly our world. And yet we've seen how this isn't disconnected from our world. It connects with our experience as Christian believers. And so even though we might not have enemies in the same way set out against us, uh, we know that there is an enemy at work even now. Of course, we'll, we'll be familiar with how there's so much enmity in the world around us. Uh, the fractures, the friction. It's hard to turn on the news and we pray about it every week, don't we? It's hard to turn on the news without seeing how parts of the world seem like they're just falling apart. It's hard to turn on social media without seeing how the seams of our society seem to be coming loose. For many, it's hard to go on WhatsApp even without being reminded of how families are entrenched in hostility. We long for rest. And what we long for is what we find here. Of course, we find periods of peace. We experience measures of peace. And yet, so often, it slips through our fingers. And so we long for this kind of rest. Well, what we long for, God brings here at the end of the book of Esther. God's people have rest, comprehensive rest. And so they have reason to celebrate You'll notice that actually a large part of our passage here is devoted to their celebration. That's how God's people respond to what's happened to them. As they experience rest, they celebrated. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. 
What are they celebrating? It's celebrating it as the time when the Jews got relief, got rest from their enemies. Uh, this was the time that they were to feast and celebrate together. And we saw it already, actually, in the report of what happened in both Susa and in the provinces. Uh, part of this is to explain why there were different days of feasting. Uh, but the pattern is the same. Verse 23, it goes from being spontaneous to being something repeated. Uh, the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. Uh, as you see, the end of chapter 9 uh, we see it all about being confirmed and established. Verse 27, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed at the time appointed. This is what they were to remember. This is what they committed themselves to pass down each generation. In the final few verses of chapter 9, you see how Esther confirms all of this. She establishes this. She writes letters. Verse 32, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim and it was written down in the records. You see, God's people celebrated as they experienced the rest that God gave them. Now, of course, celebration really is the natural response here. It's the natural response to when things turn out well for you. And we know that in our daily lives, in the small moments of life. Just think of the small wins you get and you celebrate, even if not loudly, inside. Even the most mundane things like making it onto the MTR train just when the doors close. I mean, you know that moment when you hear the announcement, first Cantonese, then Mandarin, then English. You start getting, doo -doo -doo -doo. when you get in just before the doors close, I mean, the adrenaline's pumping, right? You want to go, yes! Obviously, you don't because no one else cares. But inside, you're like, this is worth celebrating. It's the natural response. But what we find here is that it's not only the natural response, it's the appropriate response. Think of it this way. In some ways, the end of the book of Esther, I'll say it now, is a bit boring. Tension was building week after week. The drama was high. But this last little bit, it's just a report of what happens. So much of it's uh, devoted to this record of their celebrations. And yet imagine there was nothing here. Imagine that God's people experienced all they experienced. And then that was it. The book closed. It would be like an eerie silence. No, it was the natural response. It was the appropriate response. And think of it this way. For a book that starts with feasting, surely this is the only right way to respond. Feasting and celebration. I think the pattern is actually a bit like what we see in Psalm 30. Uh, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. There's that reversal there. And what's the result? That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. The silence would be an eerie silence. No, celebration is the appropriate response. And that makes sense given what they're celebrating. You see, right in the middle of this report, this record, we see what lies at the heart of this celebration. Verse 24, For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, had cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Friends, 
notice this, they're not celebrating how great they are. At the heart of this celebration isn't how strong are we. No, at the heart of their celebration is there's a remarkable turn of events. It's summed up in that word per that they use to represent the celebration. I remember seeing this dice, this lot back in chapter 3 as God's enemies rolled the dice literally to find the day in which they would destroy them. Uh, Leave it up to fate, they said. And we saw how as the enemies held this dice in their hands, it was as if they held the fate of God's people in their hands. And yet, of course, as the story pans out, we know that they were not in the enemy's hands. No, they were in God's hands. Even though he was nowhere to be seen, in his silent sovereignty, he was working to overturn the plan of the enemy. See, friends, there's a lot that we love to celebrate. And not only do we like to celebrate it, we also like to think back and remember it again and again. Uh, Perhaps you're here this morning and you love history, Uh, maybe some turning points in history. And what do you do? You read history books. You watch history documentaries. Uh, For others, perhaps you love a good story. And so you have your novels, your favorite novels, and you read them again and again, maybe once every two years. Uh, Movies, TV shows. Again, we replay those moments. Uh, If you're like me, then you love sports. And of course, we love watching sports replays, sports documentaries. We already know the result. Everyone else is thinking, why are you watching it again? This happened years ago. Oh, but you love watching it again. You love reliving it, seeing more angles, seeing more facets, going deeper into it, going richer into the backstory. Now, all of those things are wonderful things to celebrate, wonderful things to remember. How much more then? The silent sovereignty of God at work according to his purposes. You see, as Christian believers, we won't celebrate this festival of Purim, and yet we have an even greater turn of events to celebrate. A turn of events that Esther paves the way for. A turn of events that the book of Esther pictures for us. When evil was turned back on itself through Jesus Christ. I love this summary we get in Acts chapter 4. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I love the way it's put. The plan of the enemy could not, cannot outrun the plan of God. The forces of evil were all arrayed against Jesus Christ, and yet what looked like defeat was victory. What looked like defeat for God's anointed king was in fact defeat for God's enemies. Uh, Think of the summary in Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He was victorious. And through that, through that remarkable turn of events, he secured rest for all who had come to him. Friends, we have reason to celebrate because that rest is for us if we have come to Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what we celebrate at Christmas and at Easter. Those aren't just festivals where there's fun activities for kids to keep them occupied. No, we celebrate what God has done. We think of when we take the Lord's Supper here every month. It's not just one of those rituals that just comes up every, every few weeks. It is a celebration as you think back to what God has done. 
I wonder if you've thought of it this way. Every Sunday as we gather together as God's people, as we rehearse the gospel to each other, as we sing praises to God, as we delve deeper into his word, friends, as we meet together, this, this is a celebration. The end of the story of Esther invites us, urges us to look back and celebrate. Friends, will you celebrate what God has done? That's what the end of the story of Esther does. And yet, we know that it's not quite the end. So the eagle-eyed among you would notice there's still a few more verses to go. We're not quite at the end yet. See, the end of the story of Esther, it, it urges us to look back. But it also leaves us longing for more. See, actually, what the end of the story of Esther does is it reminds us that true and lasting rest, well, that's still to come. See, the end of Esther urges us to look not only back, but also to look forward to a coming rest. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire, a tax to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. That's our closing scene in the book of Esther. This is where the curtain is drawn. And Mordecai is in power. I mean, against all the odds, he is second in rank to the king. He has such influence on the authority of the whole kingdom. He does good for God's people. And yet, who is in charge? King Xerxes. Mordecai has risen up the ranks, and yet who is on the throne? King Xerxes. We get to the end of the book of Esther, we ask, how much has changed? This is still the same King Xerxes that we met in chapter 1. The self-serving one. The negligent one in his rule. Uh, the one whose power could be manipulated for evil. He still sits on the throne. Remember how the start of the story went. We were plunged into this expansive and inescapable world, this kingdom that seemed supreme, uh, that looked impressive, that looked so attractive, a world that was obsessed with appearances, a world that was ruled by this volatile king. And when we get to the end of the story, well, how much has changed? This is how one commentator puts it, what are these verses doing here? How do they round out the story? They serve to put into perspective the great reversal of the book of Esther by showing us how much remained unchanged after all. Put it in these terms, at the start we saw how earthly power seems supreme. But we get to the end of the story and earthly power still seems supreme. King Xerxes is still there. The rest that God's people experience here, it doesn't last, it slips away. You read through history and you'll see how, that, how that's the case. In other words, as this story comes to end, it, it isn't like it says, and they lived happily ever after. See friends, the end of the story of Esther, well it isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Because even though King Xerxes is still on the throne, we're waiting for, we know that the true king is still to come. See, friends, 
as those who are followers of King Jesus here, we know the true end of the story. We know the ultimate end of the story. Take this description from Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. See, friends, when the true king returns, that is when we will find true rest. That is when our sadness will be truly turned to joy. That is when there will be a true and lasting rest that cannot be taken away. See, the end of the story of Esther, it invites us to look back and look at what God has done. But it also urges us to look forward to see what God will do. It's a call to celebrate, but it's also a call to anticipate what God will do when Jesus returns. See, friends, it's surprisingly easy to live as if the end of Esther is just the end of the story. Uh, This is just it. This is just the way the world is. Uh, We end up settling for whatever we can cobble together by our own hands. Uh, We end up putting all our hopes and dreams into the next human advancement, technological advancement, political advancement, as if there's nothing else still to come. Uh, We settle for what our own hands can bring about. Or perhaps we end up grumbling as if God has deserted his people. And we spend all our time and energy commenting and complaining on how the world is falling apart. But we do that in a way as if there's no hope. And we do that as if God has deserted and abandoned his people. But friends, when we remember that the end of Esther is not the end of the story, well, that is where we find true encouragement for our souls when we remember, when we live in anticipation of what God will do, that is what will spur us on in the present. Because that is when we can know in the bottom of our hearts that even though earthly powers still seem supreme, the king, the one true king, the one who is truly supreme, he is on his way. He is coming back and he will put things right. Friends, his rule will never end. All praise belongs to him. In the words of our final song, the the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. And so friends, as we come to the end of this series in Esther, let me urge you, don't settle for what our hands can cobble together in this life. Don't waste all your time and energy just grumbling about how the world isn't the way it should be. Friends, let me encourage you not to live as if the end of Esther is the end of the story. No, instead, celebrate what God has done. Live your lives in celebration of what God has done through Jesus Christ and then anticipate what he will do when Jesus returns because he will bring true and lasting rest for all who come to him. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you have shown us in the book of Esther over these past couple of months. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to open up your word and hear you speak to us. We pray that the things that we have seen here would lift our gaze off ourselves, off our own efforts, even off the trials that we encounter, that we might see afresh that you reign supreme and that we might live our lives in celebration of what you have done and in eager, desperate anticipation of what you will do when Jesus returns. We pray this in his name. Amen.